Attention listeners, ahead are spoilers. Hello, and welcome to the Movie Trap. My name is Russell Carlson, and I am joined by Chris Boroff. We go to Pancake House. <laughs> and I am also joined by Zach Powers. Jose Feliciano, you got no complaints. That's right. <laughs> uh, welcome to the Movie Trap. On the Movie Trap, one of the three hosts you just met picks a theme, and then each of us picks a movie based on that theme. After we've watched all three movies, uh, we then vote with a certain amount of allocated points, plus some bonus points we earn along the way, and then we vote uh, which movie was uh, the best or our favorite or whatever. Um, so... You are lucky because we are beginning a brand new theme chosen by yours truly. And this batch theme is called basically Make Your Case. The idea is that you'd pick a best picture loser and you would make your case to why it should have won the best picture Oscar for that year. And that is why we are here today with 1996's Fargo, which lost the best picture in 1997 to the English patient. So that is what we are here today to do. That is the new theme of the moment. It is to make your case. It is to make a pro argument for a movie and not necessarily just listening to how much Borf hates Crash. Um, so <laughs> with that in mind, just a quick rundown of the points. As I said, we all get, so we all, each of us has 10 points for final voting and each of us has three bonus points that we can give to one another for whatever reason possible. But because this theme is kind of more of a gamey kind of theme, we've decided to throw a couple little twists in here. For one, we have decided that if two out of the three hosts decide that your pick is not indeed deserving of the best picture, the film is disqualified and removed from final voting. Uh, and also, if they agree with them, you must give them one of your points. Are we clear? <laughs> so hang on to those bonus points because you might have to give them. We will do negative points. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is just to add a little bit of gamership and be a little fun with it. So uh, with that in mind, before we get into the let's get our uh, our, our 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 warm uh, our warm coats on and plug in our prowlers and Zach Powers, why don't you go ahead and tell us 1996 Fargo. Fargo is a 1996 crime comedy film. Uh, it is written by Joel and Ethan Cohen and directed by both of them, but only Joel gets credit. Uh, it stars Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, Peter Stormare, John Carroll Lynch, and others. Um, basically, this is uh, Fargo uh, opens with... Um, a uh, shady kind of divey nightclub in Fargo where a slimy little weasel of a man uh, named Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, is meeting up with two sort of semi-competent career criminals. Um, <laughs> the B team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Co co competent and a half, you'll say, you know. <laughs> yeah, um... Named Carl Showalter, played by Steve Buscemi, and Gare Grimsrod, played by uh, Peter Stormare. And he is proposing to them that they come to his house and kidnap his own wife. Uh, essentially, his scheme here is, what's going to happen is you two kidnap my wife. Uh, uh, I'll tell you when to do it, all this stuff. 
and I'll get my rich father-in-law, Wade Gustafson, to pay off the ransom, $80,000, and you guys get half, and I get half, and I'll throw in uh, a, uh, a car, a Sierra Cutlass, uh, as, a, as a sweet little uh, extra on top. Um, so uh, eventually the two uh, accept the deal, and the plan is made, um, and we get a little bit more time looking into the sort of... Uh, life of uh, of uh, jerry here uh, again he's a he's a used not a used car sell just a car salesman um who also has a lot of like uh petty scams going on he's taken out a hefty loan against a bunch of cars that do not exist by giving like blurry shitty serial numbers fat that he faxes over to this loan company um that he is almost certainly going to get called out on sometime in the near future and also uh, is pitching like uh, real estate deals to his wealthy father-in-law, Wade, who seems to not care for him uh, a super great deal. Um, ultimately, Wade does take uh, him up on one of the uh, one of the offers um, because there's a parking lot deal that is theoretically extremely uh, lucrative. Um, but it is too late. The kidnapping is already going ahead. Uh, all during this time, Carl and uh, Gear have kind of just been traveling through the Twin Cities, uh, meeting up with various prostitutes, going to various pancake houses, uh, things like that. Um, they finally, uh, one day, however, managed to get to uh, Jerry's house and managed to, uh, after a sort of comedy of errors, successfully kidnap his wife and head back out of town. Unfortunately, that evening... Uh, they are pulled over in a little town called Brainerd um, because they're, they have uh, temporary registration dealer plates on their car. Um, Carl attempts to bribe the officer, but when he hears Gene, Gear just shoots him in the head and then has to chase down and kill two uh, passersby who happened to witness the, the uh, Carl dragging the body off of the road. Um, the next morning... Uh, uh, Frances McDormand's character, Marge Gunderson, is on the scene. Uh, she is a pregnant woman married to John Carroll Lynch. They seem to have an extremely loving relationship. Um, and uh, she is invest she's charged with investigating these murders. Um, she basically gets a basic idea of what occurred. Uh, and uh, they, you know, have an idea of what kind of car it is, that it has dealer plates, etc., etc. And she begins to track down leads she finds um, out that these two men slept with a couple of uh, sex workers who she manages to get in touch with and also tracks them down to a guy named Shep Proudfoot, uh, who is the guy that uh, connected Jerry with them in the first place, or at least one of them. Which one does Shep know? Does he know Steve Buscemi or... or he, knows he knows both of them, but he only vouches for Grimm. For Grimm. Well, I, he only vouches for, for Peter Stramari's character. But I think he I, knows Carl Showalter, but he wouldn't vouch for him. I thought it was yeah. the opposite. I thought that he knew um, Steve Buscemi, because then he knows where Steve Buscemi lives later. I think the other guy right. was the guy it, he I, didn't know. Yeah. I think... Well, William H. Macy says when he meets him in the the... Because like before, when he's about to, when he tries to cancel the the caper, he says, you know, I got in touch with your, with Grimwald or whatever, you know, and he says, uh, I don't know, I know him, I don't know another guy. It mm. does say I looked it up. He doesn't know Carl Showalter, so he doesn't know Steve Buscemi. He says, don't oh, know okay. him, don't vouch for him. 
Okay. Um, right. For some reason, I thought image. it was the opposite. Though it, though it does seem like he does kind of know him, but anyway. Yeah, it does seem like a little bit, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, meanwhile, uh, uh, Jerry is dealing with Wade and uh, his assistant, Stan, you know, Grossman, um, to <laughs> you know, get gross. this... Uh, to get this million, to get this ransom money through, and we reveal, we learn that it is act, actually one million dollars that he's asking. He's told uh, the kidnappers that it's eighty thousand to, you know, bilk them out of as much of the profit as possible and pay them off only forty k and walk away with the rest. Um, but it is in fact one million that he's asking for, and he manages to get them not to call the police, uh, and also indeed managed to get his son Scott to not talk to the police. His son, who he had completely forgotten about in uh, the light in light of this uh, this kidnapping, um, and meanwhile, uh, after finding a call log that links uh, the car dealership where Macy works to uh, Shep Proudfoot, uh, she heads over uh, to the car dealership and asks him if there's any cars missing because there's one with dealer plates out there. He says no, and she says, "Alrighty, that's fine." Uh, Meanwhile, while she's in Minneapolis, she reconnects with an old uh, high school friend, uh, Mike Yanagita, who uh, sort of tries to clumsily, romantically approach her before uh, sort of breaking down and saying that his wife has died of cancer uh, in the near future and he is having a difficult time. Um, later, uh, Marge talks to uh, another friend of hers about Mike and learns that this was all a lie. Uh, he has some mental problems that is living with uh, his parents and only had been sort of stalking maybe that woman for a while, bothering her a lot, but they were never married and she is still alive. Uh, so after this, uh, uh, she decides to go back to see Jerry again um, and discovers uh, that uh, he's much more hostile this time and convinces him to immediately go out and do a lot count. Um but instead of doing a lot count with his luck almost out, Jerry just flees in his car. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, uh, Wade has decided to take a more active hand in the kidnapping situation. Um, and uh, after uh, Carl has a particularly bad night in which uh, after going to some kind of fancy club, uh, and getting a prostitute, he is beaten the shit out of by Shep Proudfoot, who doesn't like police sniffing around, threatening to send him back to uh, prison uh, for breaking his parole. And he calls up Jerry and is like, we're doing this shit tonight. I'm sick of this. Um, but instead of Jerry going, Wade is the one who decides to take the money personally and also brings a gun. Uh, they meet on top of a parking garage. And uh, before uh, much else can happen, uh, Wade demands to see Jean, his daughter. She's not there, so Carl just kind of shoots him and goes for the money. In return, he is grazed by a bullet in the face, and uh, Carl shoots him about four more times, maybe more, uh, killing him on the spot just after Jerry arrives and throws Wade's body in his car. Uh, later, Carl realizes that there is a lot more ransom money than he had anticipated, um, but also being a uh, greedy little shit, he takes out 80K and buries the rest uh, by the side of the road to come back to later. He heads back to uh, the place where they've been hiding out, a cabin by the lake, 
and uh, finds that Car uh, Gare has shot Jean for uh, shrieking. Um, uh, at which point he uh, gives uh, Gare his 40,000, says he's taking the Cutlass. Uh, Gare could have his old truck. Um, uh, Gare doesn't like this. He thinks they need to split the cost of the car. Carl, being pretty fucking fed up, is like, listen, I got shot over this shit. We're doing it my way. Uh, and proceeds to uh, angrily leave until Garrett gets up and sticks an axe into his neck um, from behind. Uh, meanwhile, after a random tip from a local bartender who had talked to Carl uh, uh, in the bar about uh, him going crazy out there by the lake. Up there and how by he the might, lake. <laughs> and how he might have recently well, do killed Do I look somebody. like a jerk? Only he didn't use jerk, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Uh, Mar- this isn't that sort of a place that just isn't this sort of a place Marge well, what decides- kind of guy do you think I am well what kind of guy do you think I am <laughs> oh uh Carl also kills the parking lot attendant after killing uh um <laughs> killing Wade um anyway uh Marge drives around the lake following that tip and spots the car the suspicious car in question she comes upon gear shoving what remains of Carl through a wood chipper um, he attempts to flee, but she manages to peg him, uh, in the leg and arrest him, uh, and, uh, takes him into custody. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Jerry is found at a motel, uh, and arrested trying to scramble out the window. Um, uh, back home, Marge is in bed with her husband who has, uh, gotten his drawing in a, a local art contest put on the three cent stamp. Um, and, uh, they seem content with their lives and excited for the baby to come. And that is Fargo. Yeah. Man, that's doing real good, as, you know, Norm. Yeah, it's as close as you get to a happy ending on these sort of things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's more or less a happy ending for Margie, at least. I mean, you know, yeah. but not for anybody else. Yeah. Uh, no. Well, the the uh, yeah. the last the last uh, scream from William H Macy is kind of one of my favorite like person melting down on camera screams because you've been watching him be a weasel the entire time and that's the moment where it just all falls all falls by the wayside and it's just him like a little like well caught I think, animal I mean, screaming. Jerry's entire life is things slowly falling by the wayside because he's like fucking around where he shouldn't be fucking around. It's just it's. It's things have started spinning out of control since before this movie began for, mm-hmm. for Jerry. Right. Yeah, no, like the the crazy part, I I think I read this somewhere about when the Cohen brothers casted uh William H. Macy, that like they didn't realize how hard of a role that would be to play Jerry Lundergaard and the fact that Macy did it so well. I mean, it's for my money, that's the part he was born to play is Jerry Lundergaard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he has got such a face and such a mannerism for it. It's it's the part he was born to play. But one of the things that I think, I think it was Joel who said that, um, you know, like he's a guy who's never done this before, but is shocked that it's going so horribly. You know, like he's just absolutely <laughs> surprised that it's all going so wrong. Well, his, his initial scam, so like I said, he has this scam where he like send over these fake serial numbers to someone to take out a loan and like, that scam was never going to work long term. Like, it's right. a terrible scam. He doesn't have these cars. He doesn't have these right. serial numbers. Yeah. Somebody's going to check on this eventually. I think I, you just assume no one would check. Well, it's I, so stupid. 
I think it was part of his scam because he wanted to throw the $30,000 into that parking lot deal and hope to get paid back in time to pay that off. It's like each But even then, he put up fraudulent collateral. Yeah, no, I get you. I'm just saying that he's a guy who makes bad decisions and then makes further bad decisions trying to make up for what he screwed up previously. So it's like a gambler who just can't stop trying to make bad decisions. This is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing about Jerry, yeah, I don't know. I think Jerry's an interesting character because I was reading some stuff about this character and there's a little bit of debate about how monstrous people think Jerry is. Like, um, if he is, like, a lot of this does not his intention. Like, he's, he wants it to be a, quote, no rough stuff type deal. But at the same time, Jerry, like, consistently forgets about his son's well-being during the Indeed. course of this plot. He doesn't even think about the trauma that his wife will certainly go through, even if she survives this ordeal. Um, he's not like his he's he doesn't call the police at any point he's not like this is out of control i've got to stop it ever um i've even seen some people saying that because this scam is so ill-conceived that they think jerry once he gets this million dollars is just intending to blow town and leave his family behind i mean i think that's a valid thought yeah very valid we don't get to see that but yeah go ahead well, I mean, he basically does. He basically, once it all goes sideways, he pretty much yeah, pulls he up Scott and yeah. tries to go into hiding. Yeah, he just leaves anyway. So I think that that's perfectly valid. And uh, yeah, the, the picking up, I think that's the most telling thing about how monstrous Jerry is, is his complete, he almost forgets that his son exists sometimes. Yeah. Like just completely, he's already gone through the trauma of like, having his wife kidnapped, goes through the whole plan with Wade and Stan, you know, Grossman. Um, and... They, Stan asks him, like, what about Scott? He's like, oh, geez, yeah. Do you think I should tell him? You know, like, it's 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 that level of he's so focused on his own shit that it doesn't matter what everybody else – it's it's about getting to that goal for him. Um, and, and that's what sort of makes this movie so brilliant is that monsters come in all shapes and sizes and all different mannerisms and all different sort of camouflages. Um, and that's where contrasting that to like Showalter and Greer, where they're just, you know, more or less, I mean, you, you can make the argument that, that Peter Stramari's character is a fucking psychopath. Um, but Showalter more or less is just like a two bit hood. Who's just, you know, looking for an easy buck and doesn't mind the ref stuff. He's more than happy to get the ref stuff to get him out of the way of very classic Steve Buscemi character. Um, and it's also like, he's approaching kind of in like a professional aspect. Like it seems like as, as low, as low rent as he is, he's still like uh, better he, at this than William H. Macy, at least. What I think Steve Buscemi's show. Walter does something. The, Griswold doesn't do this, but uh, show Walter pretends at class. Like he likes to mm-hmm. go to these fancy, like entertainment places and have champagne. And like, he wants to go to the steakhouse and all this kind of shit. Um, but he is just like a rough and tumble, like idiot, low class moron. Like almost everybody, like all of the, everybody in the movie is like kind of low class. Like a lot of people from this area don't like how they're portrayed in this film. Their area is portrayed. It's all, you know, empty spaces and tchotchkes and like shitty chain restaurants. <laughs> um, mm. But uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's trying to be some big shot, some like very fancy 
fi- fancy dude, and he's just a uh, just a fuck up deep down in his heart. Yeah. Well, and I also think it's the the best part about Buscemi's character is he's the only one. He's mostly the only one who isn't. You could tell is not from the area. So he's yeah. more or less annoyed and baffled by everybody's sort of niceness, um, and and is is really put off by it. Like there's this one thing like where what the heck do you mean? The heck do you mean? <laughs> you know, like he just can't stand how just obnoxiously polite everybody is when there's no call to be. Uh, you know, the whole that. Uh, the whole non the, the concept of Minnesota nice, you know, yeah. like, and, yeah. and, and I, I, I can understand why people from the area would kind of like, kind of not like this movie and kind of feel like they're being kind of poked fun of, but uh, Coen brothers are kind of from there. So I, I, they, they described it perfectly. Minnesota is Siberia with family restaurants. Um, well. And they, they make <laughs> it look like that. Yeah. I think uh, that, the, the common theme with all of these sort of different kinds of monsters in the movie, and I'm including Wade in this because I think sure. Wade is uh, uh, sure. also a, pretty much a, a shitty dude deep down in his heart, um, is that these people are, they, ultimately their commonality is like a greed that is often like very, very, very minor. Like the most extreme example is... Uh, Grimsrod killing uh, Showalter over the difference between the Cutlass and his truck. Like that's the, it's for mm-hmm. a few thousand dollars probably at most. It's not like, you know, and, and each of these people successful, successfully is doing it for less and less. Like Buscemi thinks he's mm-hmm. doing it for what? 40 K and part of a car. And so does Grimswald at first. And like even Wade is trying to haggle down prices and yeah. like, He's yeah. like his daughter's mm-hmm. life is at risk and he does seem more concerned with the ransom than with getting her back a pretty significant portion of the time. Yeah, there's this, definitely this some, some, Getty, with... some Getty vibes from that guy. Getty, thank you, yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. You're getting a fucking point. Because, yeah, <laughs> I, that's immediately who I thought of. Because, like, John Paul Getty gets kidnapped in, like, Italy or some shit. Mm-hmm. And, like, they demand a ransom. And he's like, well, how about this instead? What if I give you, like, half yeah. of that and we just walk away and pretend none of this happened? Yeah. But, but mean, they, like, haggled, you know, they haggled like, down even after the guy lost an ear and they mailed the ear in. ear, right? Yeah. Right? It's just yeah. crazy. Very grim. That's very grim. You know, that, right, yeah. Yeah, Borg, you're getting a point for the Getty measurements. Uh, because, <laughs> like, I think that, um, yeah, no, that's that's the sort of, like, I'll talk about it later because this show was the, the, the movie was turned into a, a TV show on FX uh, with now running on four seasons. It's more or less taking place in the same universe. There's some connections to the movie, but very, very thin. Um, one of the things that they say in the second season, uh, character Mike Milligan says it's about Minnesota. Oh, we're, we're friendly people up here. They're like, oh, no, actually pretty fucking unfriendly, actually. Like you're doing me a favor. You know, like that's that's the Minnesota nice that kind of like get, like – Frances McDormand's character is the perfect example of this. The way she is authoritative, but also very much like, now, you know, you know, like you just get a pat on the head and, you know, I know you don't want to be mixed up in anything like that. You know, like it's, it's this kind of, (laughs) there's a facade to it. There's a lie behind it. You know, it's, it's all, it's all based on like this sort of armor that everybody just puts up on themselves. And there's a, there's a, a fakeness to it. And that's why I think that 
when Marge realizes that Jerry Lundergaard is probably involved in this in some form or fashion, or at least not being forthright about anything, uh, it, it happens after the, the, the Mike Yamaguchi Mike scene. Yanagita. Yeah, Yanagigi scene. Yeah, where he's, you know, it happens right after that. So there is this kind of peeling back that politeness. There is this sort of like chiseling away at the front that people put up to see the gooey, sticky, icky, heart black heart of most people um like this movie is extremely cynical um and extremely uh i don't want to say judgmental because i don't think that's completely right but it has to be right i mean like it is kind of passing judgment on because like all the side characters are more or less what coen brothers are very good at doing like caricatures like marge's um marge's deputy is basically just there to say yeah oh Jeez, you know, like that's 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 they're just sounding boards for that kind of thing. And the Coen brothers are really, really good at that at making it entertaining. Um, if if even just a little kind of flatly dimensional wise. But that's why it Frances McDormand won the Oscar for this and she totally deserved it because she breathed just enough humanity into Marge Gunderson where it's not a cartoon character, where she's an actual person and you kind of get where she's coming from, even if she is doing this kind of like Columbo style of like interrogations and what have you um where Um, you're trying to put them off guard by her niceness it it seems to me like it was probably uh kind of a necessity of the story because you you have so many characters that i guess you could flesh everybody out Mm. but she's really the one that should stand out because she's the one who's like actually able to solve this crime even though she's pregnant and it's i don't know if i've seen any other um detective stories that have a pregnant woman as the gumshoe yeah and, and um, i, I want to know I mean. that um marge does manage to solve this crime she's an okay detective like she gets this she solves it because she gets a tip from a guy at a bar and she solves it because carl's yeah. a fucking loudmouth who can't shut up like otherwise mm-hmm. probably uh well, at least gear would have just got away with it True, but I think it's also there's the one other time I've talked about this that I remembered from film school. They always brought up the Yamagita scene um, mm-hmm. because it sort of sticks out like an odd, uh, like a sore thumb a little bit because the rest of the movie's dedicated to let's solve this crime. And then right smack dab mm-hmm. in the middle, there's a scene where you're set up with an emotional expectation and you see this sad story. And it's kind of funny in that awkward way, almost like The Office. But... Uh, the fact that it's a lie that gets introduced to her and then there's a later scene where she's twisting and you're thinking she's thinking about that or something else but then she actually starts going like oh there's something wrong with the thing that I was told by Jerry and she turns around to go back (laughs) and like grill him so uh, I guess for me that's kind of one of those scenes where I'm like you know you could see a little bit more of the wheels turning and her kind of putting together the pieces but yeah, I would agree too that a great deal of the detective work on this is convenience based. Like she happens to know this, mm-hmm. she happens and, to know that. And also that these are deeply incompetent criminals. Like she's yeah. not catching Moriarty over here. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. And, but I mean, let's be honest here. This is how crimes get solved. Crimes are usually sure. committed by not masterminds and are usually solved by, shall we say, slightly above average competency police work uh this is that is the majority of crime in this country most people are not masterminds most people 
just kind of do it, you know, like mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen that way. So that's why I, I think one of the funniest parts about this movie is that it opens with a placard saying that this is a true story, even though it's been, it's not, it's not yeah, a real yeah. story. Well, uh, I think that I ties back that... into like this idea of lies, right? Like don't trust, right. like Marge is too trusting and maybe we're too trusting of the movie also, which is beginning by right. lying to our faces. Right. And that's, and that's why I think, and, and, I, and I think the Coen brothers even commented on that. Like once the audience thinks it's a true story, kind of gives you license to do whatever you want. You know, you, you can kind of, they'll be like, well, fuck, that's fucking crazy. I can't believe it. You know, like, so like that's <laughs> that it, it kind of sets them off guard and makes you lean into the punch a little bit. And that's why I think it's, I mean, this isn't the first movie to do it. Texas Chainsaw Massacre did it. I mean, like it's, it's not, yeah. not uncommon to, to lie to the audience upright to make a work of fiction seem true. Um, you know, like, like what do they say? The only thing that's true about Fargo is that it's a story. That's, that's what they say. Um, that's, and the, the, the Coen brothers are one of those filmmakers that are one of the, they, they're accidentally geniuses in my opinion. Like, I don't think they intentionally do a lot what gets accomplished in their films, but ends up working like just the title Fargo, right? There, none of the very little of the movie actually takes place in Fargo, North Dakota. It's pretty much it's just the opening, the opening scene, scene, and that's it, right? And 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 they explained it like, well, we Brainerd was a shitty title, Fargo sounded better, so we'll go with that. See, that's, but you could still make an intellectual case to why it's called that because that's what kind of springboards everything out. You could look at even a. a a metatextual stuff like Fargo is like the, 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 the gapes of hell and, and Jerry has to go summon these fucking demons or whatever to go wreak havoc on his life for his own benefit or whatever. Well, um, it's also like you a can do far that if place you want. to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's far <laughs> off. That's... That might be where the name comes from. Fargo. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so guys, here's a question. Sorry, uh-huh. yeah, I'll let you keep going. I just want to find out like why this well, one's no, it's, better it's, than it's what I, patient. Well, uh, oh, look, well, geez. yeah, I, I'm going to say, uh, I do want to, I do want to say one more thing about exclusively Fargo before we get too deep into the English patient comparison, which oh is one thing that definitely I think the, is worth talking about in this movie is um, uh, the use of space. Uh, particularly barren space. Like, obviously the landscape is a barren, cold fucking wasteland the entire movie. And there's also a recurring theme um, of parking lots. Like, a lot of scenes take place in parking lots. Jerry wants to make a parking lot. They have all... All this fucking place has is space. And all they're going to do with it is make more space. And, like, (laughs) I think that the... I mean, I think it's probably uh, intentional, right? Like, I think the idea is... These people, for the most part, deep down in their core, are cold, empty people, and they live in a cold, empty place. Like, what is inside them is externalized onto the world around them in a real way. Like, maybe, I I suspect part of the reason that Marge is pregnant is so that she is literally not empty. Like, that <laughs> unlike everybody else, there is something else inside of her. And everybody God, else is... Fair. And everybody else is just a cold, barren, fucking empty place. She even has this misconnect with, like, the world. Like, she sees it almost like, you know, that thing when you're a kid and you're like, how do we know we see the same color? 
Um, there's, she gives this speech to Garrett at the end where she's like, you did it all for a little bit of money. And look at you now. And it's a beautiful day. And it's fucking horrible. <laughs> it's snowing. It's frigid. It's a terrible day. It's awful. But I think it's also, uh, like I said, these people are like conniving for like often meager amounts of money or respect. And Marge is this person who is eternally content with exactly what she has. She is content for her husband to get the three cent stamp. The three cent stamp is good enough. Like, which I think no other character in this movie would make that, would have that position. I uh, Very yeah. well said, you, Zach. You gotta, and that's why I yeah, think I'm going to give you a point. I, I, uh, I actually had never heard like a good... Uh, contrast of her character to the rest of the film that put it in context of why she feels better uh the idea that she's actually content and that things work out in her favor because she's fine with what she has rather than coming up with a tomfoolery plan and doing everything else that everyone else in the film appears to be doing that's yeah that's i agree that is absolutely I, 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 what that i've never heard that before is. i think that's 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 a great point. And I, I should say, like, when I when I mentioned that the, the unintentional genius of the Coen brothers, it's not that the Coen brothers didn't do exactly what they wanted with this movie. Everything in this movie is exactly great. I remember listening to, to Deacon. Uh, Roger Deakins has a podcast now, and he interviewed Jill Cohen, and they talked a lot about Fargo. Um, and Deakins remembers a scene, I think it's in the Radisson or something, and it's just like a hallway and, like, the set dresser, like, puts, like, a plant. Just, like, one plant in there. And the Coens are like, no, it's too exciting. It, you can't. It's too dressy. <laughs> you got to scale it down a bit. And Deacon's like, then it's just walls. He's like, I know. That's what we want. It's just, it's got to be very, very, <laughs> the, the blander, the boringer, the better. That's what they want. And even more so, like, there's a scene where uh, uh, Marge and Norm are sitting there eating uh, their buffet which they do a great job of making look very appealing mm -hmm. um, of Scandinavian traditional uh, cuisine. Uh, there was a take apparently where like the deputy comes in and talks to Marge about the case and John Carroll Lynch's character, he plays it like he's kind of like, cause uh, the backstory is like, he used to be a cop. They met on the force. They couldn't both work together. So he decides to quit and go paint duck pictures or whatever. Um, so he's like pretending to be interesting because he's an ex-cop. That's how John Carroll Lynch. And this is, should be said, this is one of his first films. He, he was partially discovered because he lived in Minnesota and they were shooting this around there. So credit to the Coen brothers for finding John Carroll Lynch. Um, Jesus, I didn't know that. He was so when he, the Coen brothers kind of look at each other and go to John Carroll Lynch and say, you know, uh, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I, I figured he's an ex-cop. He'd be interested in the case. Like, no, no, no. He's waiting for her to be done. He's waiting for her to be done so he can go to go ice fishing. That's what he's waiting for. <laughs> and that's how he plays it through the whole movie where he's, he's, it's not that he's uncaring. He's, he's very attentive to his wife and everything. They've got a very stable relationship, but he is also sort of like aloof and like thinking about his duck paintings. You know, that's, that's where his, his mind is at. Um, so it's, it's just that the Coen brothers, have a very specific vision of what they want, I would say, in almost all of their movies. And in this movie in particular, I think it's even more amazing because on that same podcast with Deacons, because right before this, they did a Hudsucker Proxy, which is a much larger scale, different kind of movie. Still the kind of Coen Brothers sort of zaniness and fast talking sort of stuff, but not nearly like this. This, this was a bare bones movie. And when Deacon said, you know, like, when we were finished Hudsucker Proxy, I figured that was the movie that was going to get you guys all sorts of acclaim and prestige because you guys kind of treated this. This one was more or less like a fun little art house 
project for you guys. And, and it basically was so much so that, that Deacon's compared. I remember the editing room because the Coen brothers did all their own editing. They always used a pseudonym of Roderick James, but it was the two of them always editing. Cause they came from editing. They look at film as editors. Um, and it shows, uh, so Hudsucker Proxy back then you would hang the scenes of strips of film on a wall, right? And Hudsucker Proxy took up a whole room. Uh, Fargo barely took up a wall. That's how little they shot. That's how little they, that's, that's how much they knew they wanted in this movie. They, they, there was not a lot of messing around. And Joel Cohen even says in that interview, he said, probably if we did it today, probably, probably would have gotten a little more coverage probably. Um, but you know, that's, that's how spe- specific they were looking for in this film, which I think is to their credit, considering this is only film, what, number five for them. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that this was something that uh, kind of got John Carroll Lynch discovered. Like, that was a surprise when you mentioned that, because I remember this was the first time I saw him. Uh, I, quickly, I'm very impressed by his range. Like, that, that particular mm-hmm. actor, like, he's totally lovable in this but he's absolutely terrifying in other films where he's like a giant man sure. that is just, I can't remember which TV show. There's a TV show where he's like uh, the main he's villain. He's an American horror story as an evil clown sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and he was uh, one of the suspects in Zodiac. Uh, one of the people who was suspected of being mm. the Zodiac killer in Zodiac as well. Mm. I think it might've been that, but there was I, another, there was another thing where I just remember he was a big heavy and he was, terrifying and on the verge of killing people a lot and i think it was like a period piece but unfortunately i can't remember right now anyway he was in uh several of the american horror stories including american horror story 1984 mm. so right. it could have been that he's he's been in there i think he's been in american horror story for for a couple of seasons but i anyway um i i, I also th- you know what the coen brothers are good at is finding these character actors you know like john carroll lynch and and sipu semi even to a lesser extent um i'll say this i mean like i, I think this is one of sipu semi's best roles this is the part i say that about jerry lundergaard it's the part william h macy was born to play uh carl showalter is made for sipu semi i mean they basically wrote it for him and he plays it to a t um, sure. you know, cause he, he just kind of come out of the, the Mr. Pinkness of, of Reservoir Dogs and anything, but this is kind of the same kind of character, but a, a little, well, I don't know if he's any more weaselly than Mr. Pink. I think they're both probably on the equal levels of, of scheming and weaseliness. Um, so, but the way for me, everything I think, changes. I mean, for, 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 uh, I think Mr. Pink's sense of professionalism is much more real Sure. than Carl's is. <laughs> That's true. Cause you know, Carl Showalter is literally in the middle of fucking nowhere. And you know, at least Mr. Pink lives in Los Angeles or something where there's a degree of professionality. And, and he's you know, a, and, Mr. Pink's the only one in that movie who like pretty much avoids the infighting inside the group and is like, can we just get this fucking job done? Right. So, right. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. And, and act like fucking so, professional here. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so why is this better than the English patient, guys? Oh, my God. Where do I begin? Well, I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to just spend a lot of time doing a comparison, you know, because like, okay. Should we part briefly, of the point of this theme? Let, let, before we get into it, let me just I'll do an extremely, extremely, extremely brief description of the English patient for people who haven't seen it. Okay. It's the movie that won the Oscar the same year Fargo came out. It stars Ray Fiennes and Julia Binoche and Willem Dafoe. Um, and basically, it's the story of this guy in World War One. He gets found. He's burned to hell 
Julia Pinoch starts to take care of him and nurse him to health. We get flashes of his backstory. He was like this sort of cartographer, like explorer kind of guy uh, who ran a started an affair with somebody, Colin Firth's wife, and it spun out of control. And she, uh, he tried, Colin Firth tried to kill him, and eventually he ends up burned. Willem Dafoe wants to kill him because he spilled secrets to the uh, to the Italians or the Germans or something to try and for Germans, some reason or another. Yeah. But eventually, uh, and Willem Dafoe had been tortured by the Germans as a result and lost his thumbs. Eventually, he forgives him because he learns the circumstances and the English patient asks for an overdose because he cannot go on without his lost love and dies. That's basically the English patient. Mm, yeah, uh, it, yeah, it's real good. Um, it, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I uh, the thing about the here, what I will say, I, like I said, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time just trashing on the English patient, though I could. Um, I think that when I compare these two movies, English Patient is exactly what Hollywood's instincts are. Right, you have this hot novel piece of property that everybody in town wants to be involved with. And it plays into all of Hollywood's instincts. There, it, it pretty much goes like that. There's some weird editing tricks that Walter Murch does that kind of the way it shifts back and forth in time between him and the bed. And that, that, that's all very well and good. But for the most part, it's pretty much a pretty romantic historical melodrama. Hollywood by the numbers. Fargo is not that. Fargo is almost the antithesis of that. Fargo almost makes you long for that. It breaks a lot of rules here that are hard to replicate and do right. I think that there's a difference between Hollywood instincts and going against Hollywood's instincts. And that's why I like Fargo a lot more because there's, look, there's a lot of different metrics you could use to judge best picture, but I'm going to, I'm going to use two. Um, I'm going to go with longevity and I'm also going to go with viewing experience. Now viewing experience with the English patient. I mean, everybody's seen the Seinfeld episode where it's, it is just, fucking boring uh there it is it's shot like lawrence of arabia with about a tenth of the action um and as far as longevity who the fuck remembers english patient anymore i mean like do we don't even consider it that more meanwhile fargo you could do the voice to anybody and they're going to instantly think of fargo and plus they've had a fucking tv show a pretty successful one too at four seasons and counting uh, ain't nobody spinning off the fucking English patient. Anyway, that's my rant on that. Um, that's, you know, I think that, and even with the viewing experience of Fargo, even though I've seen this movie a bunch of times, uh, I still find myself laughing or discovering new parts about it that I like. Um, there's, there's something new, even though, and, and also not for nothing, uh, Fargo's not nearly as long and, and self-important as, as English patient is. Um, that's, that, that's where that movie really insists on its own sort of like prestige. Um, and also, uh, one of these films was produced by the wine scenes and one wasn't. Hmm. Anyway, um, not that, look, the Coen brothers then worked with Scott Rudin, who's also a prince of a man, as I understand it. Um, but just for that, I mean, this is before wine scene was really in their power. For example, they didn't fight a lot of the casting choices in The English Patient, which is not typical of the wine scenes. Um, So, but as far as that, I can just go with that. I mean, like, look, uh, I think the cinematography in English Patient is pretty good. John Seale's amazing. It looks great. Walter Murch is a genius, you know, a 
a blowhard, but a genius. Um, but other than that, it is just pretty much just a, a soapy romance that has that looks pretty and is everybody's sad at the end, you know. And I just whereas this, what I love about Fargo, this is what I think Fargo deserved best picture, even over uh, you could if somebody wanted to say that Jerry Maguire was maybe a better film than The English Patient. I might have room for you on that one, but I don't think it's better than Fargo. Uh, Jerry Maguire was also nominated. Um, because Fargo does this trick that the Coen brothers are so good at doing, where it plays, it, it's an emotional exercise, but it's also an intellectual exercise. You, The intellectual exercise, in my opinion, is the humor and the jokes and the sort of like darkness that things are funny, even though... If you saw them in real life, you wouldn't think they're that funny, but the way it's presented in the movie, it's pretty funny. The emotional is the sort of the shock of some of the violence and how stark it is comparatively. Like the movie changes everything as soon as Greer kills the cop. And there's this great shot of Steve Buscemi with blood all over him. And there's this lot of contrast of blood on snow, you know, where this white is just this all-encompassing, oppressive uh, atmosphere. And even the fact that that Steve Buscemi at the end buries the money in the white of the snow, like they're sacrificing that money to the snow. And, you know, it goes into, you can get into this arty metatextual symbolism if you sure. want. I'm not saying the Coen brothers meant to do it, but you can do it your own self if you'd like. I, That's I mean, powerful. There's so much, there's so much like even like the, the images of like a spot of red on a sea of white is repeated with such frequency that I just can't imagine even, even a spot of red in, 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 in black. like there's the scene where, uh, Garrett goes after the, the two that like drove by, right. There's this kind of matched shot where he is smoking his cigarette and it's very dark. It's a nighttime scene. And the main light of the shot is like the, the ember of his cigarette shining up and he throws it away. And the shot is matched by the tail lights of the car in front of him in the blackness, like matching the cigarette. Like, I don't think, as much as you want to say, like, these people are like the fucking Forrest Gump of filmmakers, they're not doing this on accident. <laughs> like, this is oh, no, intentional. No, 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 Like I said, no, 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 no. It's very intentional. Like I said, they, you could tell this movie was put together. They knew exactly what they wanted. That's, don't misunderstand me about when I say it's, they're accidental. What I'm saying is that they don't think about it as much as you, the audience member, might do. Mm. They don't, like, they don't pour a lot of, like, they, do you think they give a shit what happened to the money after the movie? No but they just let it sit there. Like they don't care. They just said, Nope, move Money's gone. It's just buried in there. And they just let it, let it sit there. That's it. That's the end of the movie. They don't even consider what happened to it. It doesn't even affect them. Um, well, I think and that goes there. back to the and theme. That's why I'm I saying think it, that, you know, again, like this is a movie where like money and greed is so corrupting. I think it goes back to that theme that the money ultimately is just lost. No one gets it. Like it, it's pointless. It's, yeah. right. it's this engine no, for all this chaos. The white of the world gets it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's got a pretty nihilistic view on money. Uh, it seems like the human connection is the only thing that's got value in the movie, which is, uh, is, is normal at a correct view, I'd think. But, uh, I've noticed that that is a thing in it, that it has a very nihilistic view of money in general. I watched the English patient for the first time in preparation for this, uh, episode. And, so, okay, there is like a metric by which you could argue that the English patient uh, should have won. And, and, and just to be clear, um, the, uh, the nominees, 
that this that far that uh, Fargo was up against, by the way, and the English Patient in the 69th Academy Awards, obviously very nice Academy Awards, um, are uh, um, it's the funny so number. It's, yeah, it is the funny number. Uh, the, the English Patient, Fargo, Jerry Maguire, and then Secrets and Lies and Shine. I don't know anything about those fucking movies. Um, anyways, uh, I watched the English Patient the first time. And the metric for which I could see it being the correct choice is it. I don't think it's the better of the two movies, but it is the Oscar winning feeling movie. Like if, if you were to show these two movies to be two people blind, having no idea who won and said, which one of those won best picture. I think anybody who knew anything about the Oscars would be like the English patient for sure. Like it's a very, especially a very '90s Oscar feeling Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. Like, and how it was, it was designed in a fucking lab to win that statue. Um, and yeah. there's good stuff about it. Like, I, I, I always love Willem Dafoe. I think he's one of the most talented actors we got going uh, sure. right now. Like, uh, you sure. can't that. And speaking of range, that guy can do anything too. Um, but fucking a, and it's a good movie. Like, it is a quality movie. And it feels like a fucking Oscar winner movie. Yeah. Fargo is a better film. Like it's more enjoyable. It's while being just as, if not more deep and challenging and thematic and thoughtful, like, uh, and more economical, uh, funnier, scarier. Like it's just by basically any metric, it is a better, it is a better film. It feels less like an Oscar winner, but it's a better movie. I think Zach's right. I think that part of the reason why this won is because it was designed to win. It was designed this way. Um, it, it, and it shows, in my opinion, especially for how fucking long it is. I mean, we spend a lot of time, a lot of time in that movie of stuff that I love Willem Dafoe and I love Willem Dafoe's character in it, but did we need him? Not really. Not really. Didn't really reveal yeah. anything. Didn't really do anything. Nothing much of consequence other than just more backstory. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's designed to sort of enrapture you and, and, and make you think that, oh, well, I, you know, I'm in a loveless marriage. I should, you know, or whatever. Anyway, I, yeah. I, I think what I'll say about English patient is I, I watched it again too, just to remind myself. Cause I haven't seen it. I think since fucking film school. Um, and I think that when I watched that movie with today's eyes and my older, wiser pot addled brain um i i i see the the perks of it especially like i said merch's editing seals cinematography um and a lot of the acting is great i love julia bajosh i love willem dafoe ray fines is good too kristen um, scott thomas I, is also pretty good it's, at it. sure yeah kristen scott thomas. this is one of her first real real big roles too for kristen scott thomas um and, and, you know, I don't really have a problem with Anthony Mingilla. I can't, I can never pronounce his name right, but I, I don't really have a, a, a big knock against him. I didn't really care for Cold Mountain either, but um, the, uh, I, I he, never saw. The talented Mr. Ripley is actually pretty okay. I'm, I, I, that movie was okay too, but that's much more yeah. of an interesting story. And that's much more, it's the same kind of idea where, you know, it's a torrid love affair kind of thing, but there's also these weird sort of almost, homosexual vibes going on that's yeah. sort of underplayed in the talented Mr. Ripley that, yeah. that Mingilla does a good job sort of hinting at. Um, I agree. I think that movie's better, but I, is it best picture better? No, no, I, no. I, I, I'm just saying uh, that in, in terms of Anthony Mignella's like stuff, 
the talented Mr. Ripley to me is a far better film. Um, it also coincidentally was one that was also, uh, not well received because, uh, what's his face? Matt Damon was coming hot off a variety of things and was being introduced as a sexy leading man. So having a film in which he's hmm. playing a character that is by, uh, was a big issue. <laughs> the, the Leo, the Leonardo DiCaprio B side is what mm-hmm. Matt Damon was. <laughs> yes. That's yes. Uh, so correct. I, I, yeah. Um, so yeah, I and I think that that is very indi- indicative of the '90s. But for a movie like Fargo to come out and make such a statement, um, where again I don't think the Coen brothers anticipated to curve a line from the other movie. I don't think they expected all this hoopla about Fargo. They expected it to be kind of a niche, sort of like Sundance, like art house film, and everybody loved it. And I wonder why that is. And part of the reason why I think I. I, I understand why everybody sort of attached themselves to Fargo is because it is a crime noir in an atmosphere and environment that you've never really seen that kind of story told in. Um, like you could do the story of an English patient in Minnesota and not really change a whole lot. I mean, you'd have to change a couple details like war and stuff, but if you wanted to do a steamy love affair, uh, romantic melodrama in Minnesota, those are a dime a dozen. But to do something like this, this sort of weird Hitchcockian caper mixed with this sort of very blunt but subtle comedy that's involved in it, where it's it's, it's obviously passing judgment on these people, but it's passing judgment from a place of empathy. We were talking off air about the guy. It, there's a scene in Fargo where... Jerry Lundegaard has clearly lied to these people buying a car about this true coat sealant that is obviously already included in the car. Can't do anything about it, but he lied to this person. Oh, I'll just take it off and you save yourself the money. They come to buy the car. He says, Ooh, well, I can't take it off because it comes with the car. Oh, and- I, I, um, I actually interpret that differently. I think that he can take it off. And after he said he would, he just didn't and charged them anyway. Uh, that, yeah. uh, that, uh, that, that was very, the thing. Okay, like, I it was an that option too. that he just said, screw it, and he's charging them and not taking it off just because right. they're like, what yeah. are they going to I think him saying they put that on there at the factory, I think that's horse shit. Okay, that, yeah, look, <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to accept that too, but I think the important note that I always take from that scene is the customer's reaction because the customer is just fucking fuming, right? He's just really pissed off. He's like, you sat in here and we told me we do 19.5, you know, and by the end of it, He's so exacerbated that he cannot help but say, you're a, 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 a fucking liar, you know, like, and the wife's like, oh, 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 you know, like it's the, 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 the raw rage and dark emotion gets pushed down in this society so much that any sort of showing of that is, is impolite. And, yeah. and not in character, you know? And that's where I think, yes, this movie is passing judgment, but it does come from a place of empathy where it does, it understands these people. It really, it kind of does. Even if it is on the verge of being cartoony. When you see people have actual like expressions of anger in this film that it's well-earned because there's mm-hmm. so much of it that is just people being polite for no reason. So Having um, sort of moments punctuated by Steve Buscemi, I think kind of livens the movie up. Like I always remember him screaming at the guy over the $4 for parking because it's like (laughs) such, it's such an everyday upset. And in LA, everywhere you park costs money. 
So when you're like, you drive in and you're just driving out, you didn't spend time there, you just want to leave and they still right. want to charge you. Like, you can understand why he would be so upset. And I think it also kind of works as a uh, as a setup for a murder that happens mm-hmm. later that's yeah. played kind of like a comedic and sad moment at the same time, <laughs> which is interesting. Because I could totally understand why Steve Buscemi, after being shot in the face, would not cotton to someone asking him to pay for being in the parking lot at the end. That's that's the that, that, that's another part about uh, this movie too that that I think is so great. You know that it is about the indignities of everyday life grinding you down. You know, like uh, we William H. Jerry Lundegaard is a, a monster. We've we've established that, but I think one of the best parts of his performance and in the movie is right after Wade says, "We're not a bank, Jerry." You know, like, we're not, you know, like, we'll give you, a, we're not talking about your damn word. Um, when he goes out to his car, the way it's shot, it's the only car in the lot, right? It's the, it, and then he gets in and he's got to scrape the goddamn windshield. And how many times in, I mean, we've all lived in Colorado. You, you know, like it, when you're like having a bad day and you're like, now I got to do this. You know, like it is just that, that kind of uh, everyday life will end up crushing you. This is a borrowed observation that I saw, but uh, I think it's true. And it's, um, uh, I had never thought of it before, but the fact that um, Jerry's car is the only car in the parking lot and the, uh, whatever the water or whatever on the windshield has frozen over, Wade must have made him wait for so <laughs> fucking long <laughs> till everybody else went home till the, uh, the water on his windshield froze over. <laughs> just to say yeah, yeah. It is, uh, that's why it, and and the movie does a good job of outside of marge gunderson and and the cops or whatever there are no real victims you know like other than jerry's wife and the son those are the true victims of this movie in my opinion i think that the the wife who i think plays it pitch perfect of this sort of like hey dad you staying for supper you know like she's so but yet you feel for her, like there's this scene where she gets out of the car and she's traipsing through the snow and Carl and 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 Grimm are just like laughing at her. But if you put yourself in her shoes, you you pity her. You're like, this is horrible for this poor woman. She's absolutely terrified. She has no idea where she is and she's just trying to escape. Yeah. And you have these two I, quick, quick assholes tri- just mocking her. Quick trivia. Sort of did- that, that actress was born in Fargo. Funny. Uh, but I sort of disagree with Arbus because like there's uh I'm not sure I hundred percent agree with your police work there. Um, <laughs> because I do think the interesting thing is of all the victims in this movie, the people who are actually violently killed, oh, okay. uh, only two are actually related to that, this whole scheme, Wade and Carl. Hmm. Um, everybody else is just some fucking bystander who, because of these people's stupid little scheme ended up dead. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, yeah, no, but I mean, uh, okay, I'll say that in characters that have names, <laughs> they're mm-hmm. the only ones who like I think uh, are are the the real victims. But yeah, you're right. There is so much carnage of people who had nothing to do with anything or were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, end up violently murdered. Um, but the you can feel that emotion for those victims if you want. The Coen brothers aren't certainly going to make you do that. They're they're going to 
present it as you see it. If you have empathy for them, that's great. But you could also just laugh at them like Carl and, and, and Peter Stramari character does, you know, too, because it's funny. It looks funny when she's traipsing well, around. It, it's, 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 but there it, are it shots that like the woman in the car upside down is like not a comedic shot. No. Yeah. But, Stuff but like the, the scene with the kidnapping scene itself is it's, sort of played in both ways. It's yeah. it's terrifying, but it's also very, very funny. You know, like he just says, Ungwin, I need Ungwin. <laughs> like, that's all, he's a one-track mind kind of guy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, whereas, like, in English Patient, like, I don't think that the main character's a particularly nice guy. I don't think he's all that sympathetic, to be honest with you. I think he's kind of a douchebag. Um, and sort of gets what he's got coming. Cause let's be honest, he did sell secrets to the Germans, um, yeah. just so he could have his, uh, stolen wife. Um, you know, and anyway, that, then there's the whole, I don't understand the whole scene between Saeed from Lost and Julia Binoche. I, there's oh, yeah. a lot of nonsense mm-hmm. in the English. Julia basically. Binoche is also in love with Saeed from Lost who defuses yeah. bombs. Right. Yeah. Which again, why that matters, who knows? Um, I think that when I look at a movie like Fargo, because I, I, I compare it because this movie, Fargo, you know, in 96, the Coen brothers have kind of established themselves, but they're more of like, a, you know, kind of either they do like zany screwball comedies like Raising Arizona or Hudsucker Proxy, or they do like these kind of weird, almost like metaphysical tense thrillers like Barton Fink or, or even uh, uh, Miller's Crossing in some respect. Um this is more of a return to like Blood Simple, only much, much more elevated than Blood Simple. Blood Simple is one of those movies where I, I've only seen like a couple of times because I only really watch it for more or less educational purposes. Just to, it's it's the Coen brothers, you know, in, you know, in fetal form. You know, they haven't quite realized. Fargo, to me, is like their coming out party. This is their a statement movie. And, and I, like I said, I don't think they meant it to be that, but it is in fact that because every movie post Fargo sort of harkens back to Fargo or to Hudsucker Proxy or to anything else. Anything they do builds on what they've done pri- previously. This is where I, you, you kind of compared it. Like I'm not comparing it to the Forrest Gump. I think the Coen brothers are more, more like the Sonic youth of filmmaking. What I mean by that is Sonic Youth is a band that plays a very specific weird style of music, but they've been on a major label for almost their entirety existence of a band. So they've been able to get away with murder, basically. They've never changed their sound. They've never done anything different, but they've still made a major label contract. Same thing with the Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers have always had major studio backing in some form or fashion, but they leave them alone. Because why? Well, they're always on time and they're always under budget. And their movies, while not being huge, huge blockbusters, always manage to turn a profit. Fargo is the, the, the prime example of that. Of doing something with such specificity, but yet leaving it open to the audience to fill. It, it fills the cup halfway. And then you, the audience member, sort of fill up the rest of that cup. Because, like, Jerry's whole scam with the GMAC loans, it never explicitly says what he's doing. It just sort of hints at it. And you kind of get the notion of what is going on and why Jerry Lundergaard is in so much trouble um, and why he needs the money um, without actually saying it. So it does require a bit of work from you as the audience. But you don't have to put in that work if you don't want to to make an enjoyable experience. Um, so that's where I think 
had the Coen brothers won Best Picture for Fargo. I mean, I should say, I mean, it was nominated for, it was nominated, it, it did get like a bunch of nominations. William H. Macy was nominated. Uh, McDormand actually won the Oscar. Um, Deacons was nominated. Like, it's not like it wasn't recognized by the Academy. Uh, but I think everyone was so enamored with the English patient because it was such the hot property among town. They just talked themselves into it that like, well, it has to be great because everybody wanted to be a part of it. And, and look how great it turned out. It's better than I expected. Um, you know, so yeah. I think that that played into it more. Whereas you could make the same argument for a movie like Schindler's List if you want. But that movie, I think, actually did kind of reward itself in the end. But anyway, um, I, I just think that Fargo, to me was the best picture of that year because of how many rules it broke in general filmmaking. Like the main character doesn't show up until 30 minutes into the movie. And mm -hmm. as Zach said, it's not like it's her detective skills that crack the case. You know, it's just one guy in a bar. It's a, who it's a short, like foul it's a language. short film before the movie. Yeah. It's a prologue. Uh, yeah. I, I went, um, Possibly you could do this, Chris. I think that might have been the longest uninterrupted flow of speech on the podcast from one person <laughs> we've ever had. I almost want to counter in the corner when Russell begins talking until when you are the when any of the others of the rest of us speak. Uh, yeah. I think, uh, 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 hey, look. There was I, a as lot, I've said that before, was, that I, was a lot of final thoughts. He thought some stuff up. He had some things yeah, to say. Right. Yeah. Well, look, I'm making my case here, guys. I'm trying to make the case. Um, you know, also, uh, just just real quick, too. I want to say about the fucking music, too, because the score for The English Patient got the, Nos got the Oscar. Carter Burwell for, for, for Fargo wasn't even fucking nominated. And I think that's, oh, yeah, that's outrageous. A great yeah. That's outrageous, because I think part of what makes the atmosphere of this movie is that theme song, because it's this almost, like, dirge, this funeral dirge that's that's happening throughout the movie. And it's... it it telegraphs to the audience this is gonna get really fucking dark this is gonna get really bad <laughs> pretty quickly um and and i think that that deserves a lot more credit than just you know not lawrence yeah. of arabia music well it, it elevated the movie like it turns what is essentially a small story about hoods and uh death and uh uh, just sort of a noir thriller into something that has more of a theatrical tone because it's got swells i think when uh wade takes one in the chest uh there's a shock swell of music um mm -hmm. so yeah i i was actually surprised that uh, it was not nominated for an oscar i mean this this film's soundtrack has been reused multiple times in other places so yeah i mean i i would agree with carlson on this i think that it's uh, an oversight that it wasn't the academy award winner i can understand why at the time um th that the other movie uh, the English patient would have won, but you know, I think some of that comes down to just the current zeitgeist, what's popular at the time. Um, I have a feeling that the Academy Awards are, were never that objective and hmm. we're going to probably, what? we're probably going to have a couple other options that come up that make us think that the Academy Awards might not be the best source for whether a movie is actually good. Correct. And this is where I had trouble doing this theme, because do I think that out of all the movies that were made in 96, 97, do I think Fargo was the best? I don't know. I haven't seen all those movies, but I can say that out of the movies in the best picture category of that year, I think it's hard to beat Fargo. I think it really, really is. I think that 
when it comes to just, like I said, the two metrics I'm going on, longevity, well, I think I win on that regard because nobody even fucking thinks about the English patient anymore outside of the Seinfeld episode, um, which is basically just saying how the movie's mm-hmm. not that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and viewing experience where, I, I don't know about you, Zach, but uh, I spent a lot of time on my phone uh, watching the English patient because I'm like, fuck, watch, fucking here we go. Fucking, one, yeah. Let's go. Um, it's slow at parts. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. It's, it, it, I mean, it's it, like I said, it's not a, it's not a shit movie. It's, it's not deep hurting or anything. My eyeballs weren't bleeding. In fact, yeah, it's, it's quite pretty, a it's, feast it's for the eyes. It's not bad. It's, 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 yeah, it's quite a feast for the it's, eyes. It's good. But, it's pretty good. It's, you know, I don't think it's like an embarrassment that it won per se. It's like, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not as egregious as some choices could be, but I do think that this film, part of the problem with the Academy is it gets bought, it buys in its own hype. It'll, things get hyped up so much that they'll eventually just like, well, we have to because everybody else likes it. It's a, it's a self-feeding machine that will keep going. And I think that's what Fargo was a victim of. Um, but I will say it's not that the Coen brothers haven't been acknowledged by the Academy later on. I mean, they very much have, but this was one of those times where they're really new and the Academy could have been on the ground floor of acknowledging who I think are some of the finest American filmmakers of our generation in Joel and Ethan Coen. Um, you know, I, I, I long time listener to the podcast. No, I, I see the world through Coen brother tinted goggles. Um, so I, I'm a fanboy, needless to say. But I tried to look at this as objectively as I could, um, and I, yeah. I still stand by it. So, yeah, I, no, I think you're both right about it. Yeah, I think the Academy Awards is mostly marketing push, but we can get into that more with the later ones. Uh, Zach, <laughs> yeah, did that's you have, true. Um, did you have kind of final thoughts on this one, or? Well, uh... let me just. Yeah, Zach, why don't you give me your final thoughts and then I'll finish up with my final thoughts since it's my fucking show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, well, I'll go away. Chris can do his and then we'll... Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's Fargo. Like, I, I, I don't know what else there is to say about Fargo that hasn't been said by somebody at this point. Like, it, you know, one of the things about the fact that it is such a remembered movie that has such longevity is like, I mean, a billion, billion pieces have been written about. I mean, I wrote my first film class in college. One of the things we had to do was write a paper about like cinematography in Fargo. And like, I wrote about like that thing I talked about earlier with the cigarette ash matching with the, the brake lights of the car. Like I remember writing a paper about that. In my like intro to film, film class, <laughs> film 101 or whatever the fuck in, in college. Um, yeah. I mean, I think almost everybody thinks this is uh I think you'd be hard pressed to find many people who don't have this as one of their top, top Coen brothers movie on like the short list of the top three, maybe five. And that's pretty good. Cause they've made some pretty fucking good movies. Um, For so sure. yeah, I, you know, it's Fargo. <laughs> uh, yes. I, and also I'll say in regards to the, Oh, we'll save the, what we, whether we think it should have won afterward. We can do that after. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right, yeah, Chris, in, what you got? Well, in the shortest way I can say it is that this is absolutely one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. Um, I think the only one that's sort of in the lead, just for very personal reasons, is uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, hmm. Because I just really like that movie and it really responded with me. So, um, And it, The Big Lebowski is great, too. Uh, not saying it's not great. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, if I had to have an, an average weekend to just watch a Coen Brothers movie... <laughs> I'd probably watch Oh Brother Where Art Thou because I like the music. Um, 
but yeah, I uh, I agree. This one probably should have won. We can go ahead and uh, you can give your final notes, your final yeah, thoughts, and we'll I, do the wrap up. Yeah, that's uh, I I can mimic how I, I can be brief as well because yeah, like Zach said, what could be said about Fargo that hasn't already been said ad nauseum, um, and I think even if it's not your favorite Coen brother movie, you have to probably acknowledge that this is probably one of their best. Um, that it's as far as masterpieces by the Coen brothers, this is up there. Um, and as Zach said, that's a tough field, uh, cause they've made some good ones. Um, it, yeah, probably not my favorite one, but it's up there because this, uh, this movie is rewards you with a rewatch considering how economic it is. There's a lot going on and there's a lot of, real thick humanity to dig into even if it is cynical even if it is kind of satirical it it you could find a lot in there that you would still relate to and enjoy um and i think that when it comes to the academy and my making the case i mean i'll even say that macy should have been nominated for best actor he was just nominated for Best Supporting. And Buscemi should have been nominated for Best Supporting. Because like I said, I think this was one of his best roles. Um, where he's just this firecracker. Uh, and contrasting that to Peter Stramari's character, who says all of ten things throughout the most movie, mostly monosyllabic. Um, and to have that contrast work out in such a such an enjoyable thing to watch is, is difficult to do. Um, Coen brothers are very good at these sort of crime money sort of capers. It's, it's a pretty big theme in most of their movies, but also a big theme is very much old Testament style justice, um, where their view of a metaphysical world is a capricious, cruel God, <laughs> you know, like that, that is there. And, and in this movie, it's the snow. It's the white because in there's a scene when they're in the cabin and they're trying to get the TV to work. And it's just this snow on the TV for you kids out there. That's how it used to be. Um, <laughs> and to contrast that with the white of the snow all around it, it is that the white is the, the old Testament sort of justice that the Coen brothers like to incorporate in a lot of their movies. And it hints at better things to come from the Coen brothers, in my opinion. But um, this is the movie that, went from sort of niche, interesting, quirky little films like Barton Fink and, and, and Hudsucker Proxy to prestige. Um, even though, even if it was unintentional, they didn't mean for this to be a prestige film, but it is in fact a prestige film. And I think changed the trajectory of film and filmmaking in the 90s to where you see in the later 2000s. They, this film is one of those pivot points to kind of move away from the sappy melodrama of like the English patient and just how pretty it looks and how historical and all the costume stuff and everything. This one gets to be a bare bones movie and i give it more credit for that yeah let's just say what if we uh, agree that it should have uh taken it home um uh yeah i'll say again um uh this like it's just what i said before like you could make the argument that the uh, english patient is more of an oscar movie but this is a better movie and that is good enough for me um like, I don't want to get into, like, the politics and aesthetics of what is an Oscar movie as much in this particular case. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
I'm just going to say that the fact that this is a better movie uh, that has clearly stood the test of time is more memorable. I think does a lot of things more successfully, more quickly. Yeah, I think that it's fair, perfectly valid to say this should have won the Oscar in uh, 1996 or seven or whatever it was. I concur. This film should have won the Oscar. Um, the English patient should kick rocks. That's my opinion. <laughs> uh, obviously, I agree uh, because, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, well, thanks, guys. Yeah, I made my case pretty well. But honestly, let's be real. That's a pretty easy fucking case to make. This was a, this was a pretty low-hanging fruit uh, for this theme. You know, like I said, everybody knows that, that the English patient, if you, you're of two minds about it. Either you've seen it once and you're like, well, that was something or you know but nowadays like i said nobody even fucking remembers the english patient so like i said pretty low hanging fruit on my end so i guess I, let's uh we'll get through a rundown of the points and see what uh what next case uh we the jury will hear in front of the court of best picture faux pas uh so uh we did give out some bonus points actually for um for everybody so here we go uh, Chris, you got a point from me about the, the John Paul Getty thing, because that's very, very funny. Um, and Zach Powers, you got a, uh, Zach Powers got a point from Chris about the emptiness in everybody's character and contentment in Marge Gunderson's life and that relating to the pregnancy that she's not empty, uh, which I thought was a very good point as well. So that brings, uh, you and Chris up to 11 points and me at 10 points and, uh, Zach, you have all three of your bonus points. Chris and I, we've got two. So, Zach Powers. So I uh, got a little list of possible options, and I wasn't sure which one to do. So I'm alive right now. Roll the dice and pick from this short little list and uh, figure it. out what we're going to watch next. <laughs> uh, I won't tell you what's on the list. I could tell you next time, but I don't want, if uh, if Chris is considering one of these films, I don't want him to Steal feel your like, pick. oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, don't want him, I don't want him to feel like he's... Uh, He's yanking something from me. Uh, you don't want to oh, wow. unilaterally okay. disarm him. <laughs> this is going to be... Okay, it's a contentious one, um, but one that I believe to be the case. This is actually maybe the, the most risky gamble uh, on this list. I am of the opinion that There Will Be Blood should have beat No Country for Old Men. That is a contentious one. Oh. That and see like yeah. that's that's, yeah, a, that's, that's that's fucking. That's not a guarantee. No, that's no, that that that's is. That's not a guarantee. That's a perfect yeah. pairing with what we just had. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, that that is fucking interesting because unlike this movie, where the, I think the discrepancy between the two is so vast, these two they're close. They're close. That, yeah. That's a tough call. This, this might be a tough call. I believe there will be blood was the better film and should have won. But I am uh, making a risk. This is the riskiest one on the list, I think, that I uh, oh. that I put together. I, I like it. A, I have a feeling that we're going to be quoting something that Carlson said in this episode when we talk about the next one, based off longevity and cultural relevant relevance. Hmm. Re hmm. Relevance. Interesting. Relevant. Relevant. Yes. We do podcasts, people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't. I mean, I don't think either of these movies have been forgotten by any metric by any measure but yeah, yeah. for sure uh, we can get fun. into that next time yeah yeah no so that's uh yeah that 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 sounds like an interest this this one will definitely be uh uh yeah there will be blood <laughs> um so yeah uh okay that sounds great so tune in next time for round two of the make your case uh movie trap uh where we try to uh correct academy history as best as we can 
Uh, so tune in next time for Will We Will Be Watching There Will Be Blood. If you want to, you can watch No Country for Old Men uh, to sort of arm yourself if you'd like. Uh, that's sort of the fun of this category. You can watch two movies or you can just watch the one movie. Uh, mm. But I think in this case, I think you're almost going to have to watch both uh, because they're mm-hmm. uh, at, at least both of these are, are enjoyable films to watch. Um, so, yeah, I guess with that being said, thank you all for joining us. Uh, hit us up in the comments. Write us up. Tell us what we could do better or worse. <laughs> uh, you know, play around with us where you can find us at all the social medias and find the podcast wherever. Tell your friends. Write reviews. Uh, and, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And join us next time uh, for There Will Be Blood. Uh, with that being said, I have been Russell Carlson, and I have been joined by my partners in crime, Chris Bora. He's the funny-looking one. You know, generally funny-looking. He's <laughs> kind of funny-looking. <laughs> oh, just in a general way. <laughs> and I've also been joined by Zach Powers. Yeah, I decided not to park here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I still got to charge you the $4. God, that movie's so good. All righty, go watch Fargo. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and as we always say here on The Movie Trap, Diane Ladd is too young to play Chevy Chase's mom. It's true. It's the movie Trap Promise. See you guys. How you doing? Mr. Mora? Yeah. Officer Olsen? Yeah, right Well, so I'm tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedlin's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action, what do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. He says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedland, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it. But then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. Well, what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a... Little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. Okay. Well, thanks a bunch, Mr. Mora. You're right. It's probably nothing. But thanks for calling her in. Sure. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Oh, yeah. We've got a front coming in. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs>